Okay. Well, here we are. It's the Library Live Hour. We're live on the radio on KFSK in Petersburg. This is a special Library Live. We have, uh, we have a guest, a famous author, Heather Lindy. <laughs> <laughs> Heather, thanks for joining us. It's, it's so exciting to talk about your book and to think of, I, I love the, the notion that all over the state people are reading Find the Good. Unexpected life lessons from a small town obituary writer. That's you. Yeah, then hardly famous. <laughs> famous in a small group of people <laughs> in Southeast Alaska, maybe. But um, yeah, when the book, you know, was picked for the Alaska Reads uh, program, I didn't even know like it was in the running. I didn't know how all that worked. Usually, I'm hosting, you know, the writers that come to Haines. So, and then. When it when I was told, and this was like in July or so, I'm like, oh great, you know, I get to be like find the good when the world's coming to an end. <laughs> and I thought, oh no. Um, but actually, looking at it now, and even though it was written, you know, five years ago, um, it's it's actually pretty uh, a good read for these times, I think, because the stories, you know, it's not all Hallmark find the good. I mean, it, it comes out of my work writing obituaries for the Chilkat Valley News. So it's things that I've learned from people kind of during their worst times. And um, I've also realized that in my own life, my, a lot of my you know, most meaningful relationships come or are strengthened, you know, when, when people are having a tough time. It's not when everything's going great that you need your friends or family or whatever people to be understanding or it tests you sort of character wise or, or, you know, pulls all your empathy strings. That stuff is when bad things are happening. So um, I think, and right now we're, everybody's kind of a mess in one way or another. So um, hopefully this is, is, is helping. The other thing I, I really, for me, that's been really lucky because I am, Somewhat of a um, oh travel is sometimes I get a little anxiety about going all these places and especially flying around in little planes and so the fact that I've been able to visit all these communities on Zoom or you know now on the radio um, has really been great and it's been really comfortable and talking to people you know just in their homes and everybody's so uh, I don't know it just seems much more casual than standing up at a podium or something and being with all the local monkey mucks. It's just, you're just talking to people. And I've had a lot of great conversations about all kinds of things. So I hope that happens today on the radio. I don't know if, if calling in might make people shyer, but um, it's uh, in, in that it's been a really good experience. Nice. That makes sense. I, I can see how, yes, indeed the book really is a good fit for these times. I know people are feeling so much stress for so many different reasons out there and experiencing a, a really heartbreaking amount of tragedy. And um, there was a line in, in the opening essay, I think, in the book that if you'll let me, I'll read it out to the listeners because I thought it just made that point perfectly. Whenever there's a tragedy, the awful events are followed by dozens and dozens of good deeds it's not that misery loves company exactly. 
Rather, it's that suffering in all its forms and our response to it binds us together across dinner tables, neighborhoods, towns and cities, and even time. Bad doings brings out the best in people. And I just think that that summarizes why this book is a really beautiful thing for folks to read these days and why I'm so glad that you're here with us and that you're you're the pick for this statewide read. You know, it's, Thank you. Uh, these are times that people come together because of shared hardship, I think, and have to find a way through. And by looking for what's good instead of focusing on the worst parts, I really think people are able to endure in a more beautiful way and you know like your title says find the good <laughs> i know i know i am such a i'm, I'm i am uh, such a pollyanna and rose-colored glasses but you know frankly I, I don't know about you but i don't know how else i want to be in the world you know i mean do you want to just be sad and grumpy and anxious all the time that's not a good place to be so not that those things aren't all there but if you can just kind of just even for a little bit of the day, try to pull yourself out of that. And, you know, luckily, I think for Alaskans, you know, where we live in such a beautiful place, there's lots of opportunities to do that. You know, you, you don't have to look too far. I mean, you just have to step outside for a minute and you can kind of, oh, okay, yes. I mean, my friend and I, um, uh, Beth, we walk every morning um, and for about an hour, you know, and it, we're walking along the, the beach and the mountains and we'll get going, you know, about everything, politics and COVID and our families and da, 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 da. And then we'll just stop sometimes and just start laughing because it's like, look, just a minute, just stop and just look where we are. And you see all the mountains and the, you know, the river coming down and the sun or an eagle or a heron. And it's just like, oh my gosh, you know, we're so grateful to be where we are right now, even in the midst of all this other stuff in the world, that it, it seems pretty, a pretty good place. And um, I, I, I just figure I know that um, uh, it's almost in spite of, um, because of what everything that's happening in the world, that it's even more important to just take a little bit during the day and get off the phone and quit checking the latest updates for whatever you're checking for. <laughs> and, and, and just try to like take a, take a deep breath and, and think about something that's a little better. Um, I, uh, I don't know. I think the other thing too, I, I miss a lot is, um, the, you know, as much as I like the zoom and, and talking like this, I just really miss all the much more informal community gatherings, you know, the interactions that happen kind of every day that uh, with people that aren't in my bubble or in my kind of slipstream of, communications and texting and emailing and phone calls and all that. It's, it's everybody else that I'm not seeing and, and the potlucks and the events and, uh, you know, just going in and out of the library or the pool. We were just talking about that. The hands pool has been closed and they're opening today. So, but you know, that's going to be a, okay, I guess I can go to the pool. It's safe. <laughs> but yeah. um, there, you know, there's th those things that would have just been gone for so long now that, um, who, who would have thought back in March that we'd be going, you know, on Zoom church for seven months now? <laughs> it's almost inconceivable. Right, uh, right. But I'm grateful that we've been able to. Well, yeah, it's nice that there's a way to kind of get by and meet some of those needs mentally. But, you know, without the, without the physical presence of each other, it's, it's hard too. But I, I love what you said about being outside um, you know, as I was reading your book, I was thinking a lot about how 
folks handle sort of constant state of sadness, you know, and that comes from a lot of different things. I mean, for, you know, for you as kind of the character in this book, who's entering into people's lives at a moment of peak sadness to explore the story of their lost loved one, you know, that's so intense. I was really moved by this scene where you're um, singing in your car and I think the line was to clear your emotional deck so you won't cry as soon as the widow opens her front door. Right. And I realized, you know, that made me think about just what you were saying about taking a walk outside. I feel that too, you know, when, when events or momentary crisis or whatever gets so heavy in the chest that it's hard to catch a breath, you know, just taking a nice long walk outside, no matter the weather, and just looking at the world there can, you know, clear, clear the emotional deck, <laughs> you know, just mm-hmm. like you said there. Yeah. And, um, and inject into the spirit uh, the awareness of the undeniable world that we can and should be grateful for that's all around us. The, the sort of the miracle of having a moment happening that we are a part of, you know, no matter where you are. And, um, but I really love that essay. That um, which one is it? I, I now you have to remind me. I could read it if you want me to. Maybe we should. It's I think say about singing practice. Oh, so it must. Oh, practice staggered breathing. It's I about being in the choir. We all miss that right now. That totally relates to what we're talking about. about I think that's. I think that's. Maybe that's the one where that's in. Let me see. Um, I can read it. I, you know, for those people that haven't read the book yet, too, it's not really about obituaries. It's about just some of the things that I've learned in writing them and obviously not everything. And it's also all mixed up with life, obviously, um, in Haynes particularly and, and small town. And, um, uh, and I don't know if that line about clear the decks are here, but I'm going to go ahead and I'll read practice staggered breathing. I haven't read it in a while. If that's, if that's okay with you. I'd love to hear it. Read everybody a story. <laughs> um, and practicing staggered breathing is, well, I think this, this um, I think it explains it, but with each of the chapters in the book, I, I also tried to have a, a, a little, you know, the title would be sort of something that I, I've learned um, through living in a small town, raising a family and the writing obituaries, you know, being with people in their worst, worst hard time. So, This begins, I sing spirituals when I'm weary, and just as they promise, I'm refreshed. Country songs are my choice when I'm hiking. Yodeling keeps the bears away. I have a CD of guys and dolls that I sing along to when I'm on my way to an interview for an obituary, hollering, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. Alone in the car clears my emotional deck so I won't cry as soon as the widow opens her door. I'll never sing a solo except in the privacy of my Subaru. I do not have a great voice, but I can read music and carry a tune, and I am a solid, though definitely not leading, member of the choir. I mean that literally, the Haynes Acapella Women's Chorus. There are two dozen women, give or take a handful, who practice at the museum on Thursday nights from six to seven under the volunteer direction of Nancy Nash. Gathered together in that space, we become something better. Sometimes it even feels greater 
than the sum of our singing parts. We stand in a circle or sit on folding chairs in the main gallery, learn new songs and belt out old familiar ones, surrounded by yellow and black Chilcat Indian blankets and other displays that illustrate our town's history, much of which has been written by, and nearly all of it preserved by, women like us. Elizabeth Sheldon Hackinen founded the museum using the objects her father, a grocer, collected. Native Clinket women wove the distinctive Chilcat dance robes. There's a modern day Chilcat weaver in our group. Haynes is named for Mrs. Francina Haynes, a Presbyterian missionary. And there are several pastor's wives who sing with us. Nancy Nash even works in the museum archives part-time when she's not giving piano lessons in her living room. All around us is a lot of colorful, somewhat random stuff. There's a glittering lens from an old lighthouse, two bearskin rugs, a reproduction wood and sinew dog sled made for a Gold Rush era movie filmed here in the 80s, blue and white antique china, some old dolls that were Elizabeth's when she was a child, and elaborately beaded sealskin slippers too. All proof of how individual community members may add a bit of sparkle to one area or another. But collectively, our pooled talents and interests create, as my daughters say, an impressive pile of bling. You don't have to sing in a choir to see that a group of committed people who care about something that makes life a little brighter and work hard at it can accomplish more together than alone, but it helps. The choir doesn't so much rehearse as learn songs and then sing for the fun of it. We don't appear in public all that often, but when we are asked to perform at special events, like the 50th anniversary of the ferry system, the women's club convention, or a funeral, we're prepared. As much as I love to sing, especially tucked securely into the alto section, I feared I could barely make any sound at all the afternoon we found our places on the stage at the memorial service of a good friend who died at 61 from a relatively rare blood disease. No matter how many obituaries I write, I will never get used to talking to someone one day and learning that they've left town and the entire planet the next. It may not shock me the way it does others, but that doesn't make it any easier. There is no good in missing someone so badly you can't even hum. We opened the memorial service with Dona Nobis Pachem, or Grant Us Peace. The miracle was that peace not only settled like a shawl on the shoulders of our choir, but it draped the entire hall. By the time we finished our set with Hope, an Emily Dickinson poem set to an old Irish hymn, our voices had swelled into a river of comfort flowing over all those sad people. They had mostly stopped crying and had settled more comfortably into their seats. We begin each practice with the same song we sang at the memorial service, and this Thursday was no exception. Nancy said she had an idea that would make it sound even better the next time we performed it. She had altered the timing. This was not met with odes to joy. I was not the only one who preferred the round the old way. Our first attempt at the different arrangement sounded okay, but it was difficult to sing without gasping for air. Nancy was not discouraged. This is the perfect opportunity to practice staggered breathing, was how she phrased it. That made me dizzy. It's not intuitive, she said, asking us to try again. It takes work to blend. My whole life sometimes seems not intuitive, 
Finding the good certainly isn't, especially at funerals. Of course, it takes work to be part of a choir, a family, a community. Why is there so much more to everything we do than meets the ear? It can take as much effort to harmonize in choir practice as it does the next morning at the library budget meeting with the mayor. But after arguing without success against a 10% budget cut, I want to sing so badly with the choir to be part of a unified front that I don't care if I'm red-faced or turning blue from the effort. And I don't think it's just me. Look at how well Nell, who organizes the liberal We the People group, gets along with Barbara, whose husband blasts them in regular editorials in his conservative online newsletter. They are both second sopranos and stand right beside each other, singing the same part. Half the time they share sheet music. This is what my friend Teresa is observing when she says that community life is spiritual boot camp. Because they enjoy singing, Nell and Barbara swallow a little pride, practice a little forgiveness, and make a lot of lovely music that transcends, for an hour a week anyway, their opposing allegiances. Our angelic behavior did not grant us immunity from the flu that was going around, though. This was back when the flu was just a regular thing. That was why there were only about 10 of us at the next practice. A few women were on vacations, too, taken in the winter for obvious reasons in Alaska. Susie had just had her baby, so she had the best excuse. Susie had been singing with the choir only a few weeks before her dramatic engagement a couple of years ago. She was volunteering as the host on the afternoon country music show on the public radio station when her boyfriend, Jeff, walked into the studio while she was on the air and asked her to marry him. Just like that, live, her microphone was on. I turned up the radio in time to hear Susie stammer, yes, yes, and then clear her throat and say it was time for some more music. It was a wildly inappropriate selection, a bluegrass ballad about a Civil War hero who died drunk and alone in a muddy ditch but she had already had it queued up. If I weren't in the choir, I would have missed the response to Susie's proposal, the way we all cheered when she arrived at practice and how Nancy led us in the John McCutcheon birthday song, improvising wedding themed lyrics. We almost sang, it's your wedding, we wish you many more before Nancy loudly switched to, it's your marriage, we wish you many years or something like that. The years are adding up. Births and deaths, arrivals and departures, old songs and new, all held together by the strength of not one note, but so many blending together. We will never be on stage at Carnegie Hall, but lives have been changed for the better by our music and our connection to one another through it. If I weren't in this little choir in the middle of nowhere, I wouldn't have been standing on the stage at that memorial for my good friend who died at 61 singing peace with all my heart into all those tear-streaked faces, I wouldn't have truly felt Emily Dickinson's beautiful words, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. And better yet, because I sang about that little bird who sings sweetest in the strongest gales and never ever asked a crumb of me, I felt that unexpected surge of contentment. It may sound corny, but I don't care because it's true. Hope did perch in my soul that day, and I watched it flying around the room as surely as if it were a yellow canary. Some philosophers urge young people to march to their own beat or dance to their own music. There's a time and place for that. 
but I sure hope my grandchildren find a choir and work to sing along with it. We may not be able to control when children throw up or a spouse leaves us or when one of the altos has a stroke between morning worship and the evening church potluck and won't ever be returning for the dress shoes she's left by the coat rack when she pulled on her snow boots. We cannot stop a once vigorous running companion from shrinking inside a hospital gown and disappearing entirely, but we can keep on singing. This is how we give each other a little lift on low notes and a smile on the high ones, or share the effort in those places where staggered breathing is the only way to make it to the end of the day. Well, thank you for even asking me to read that. I, I hadn't um, read it in a while and I kind of surprised. So that, that, was, that, was a, that really matched right now. I mean, that's so weird, isn't it? How that happens, I mean, Maybe, maybe we've always been as divided as we feel like right now or, or um, fractured, but that's a, that's a good, oh, that, that makes me feel better right now. I just wish we could go to choir practice. I feel you on that one. Yeah, that's such an interesting point. I think maybe, you know, you know, people have always been inclined towards factionalizing and everything like that. There's always forces pulling some together and others apart. And they're pretty forceful things. But in community life, like as you showcase in this example, and I think as everybody in these small towns, Petersburg, Haines, and every small community in the world, everybody knows that community life is really the essential heart of it is doing these things outside of one's own little bubble, which is a, a taboo concept in a certain way right now. <laughs> But like, but the reality is, you know, by by placing our attention on things, and often it's fun things, you know, like singing. Yeah, or, that's fun. It is fun. I mean, I was just thinking how much I miss it. I mean, you know, all us, we'd always race over to, you know, because somebody was was late for dinner, and then, you know, Haynes is like Petersburg, so there'd be people driving in, but there's people walking in the dark, you know, down Main Street that are coming over, and yeah. um, you know, we all. It takes a while for Nancy to corral us all to quit talking and sit down and start singing, you know? It's so beautiful. Yeah, coming together. I love the image of um, Nell and Barbara. Yeah. These folks who belong to sort of different ideologies, which like in, in a political campaign season, we can be misled into thinking that political ideologies are enough to keep people's lives apart or something like that. But right. that that is an illusion created by advertisers, you know? And the reality is like we, we live in exactly the same little strip of land and our common interests are far more than our differences. And by, I love the image of them sharing the same sheet of paper, singing yeah. the same notes. And just in the course of pursuing a thing that they enjoy in the service of making something beautiful together, simply for the, for the purpose of making something fun and beautiful together, they're able to just shed the illusion of uh, impenetrable ideological bubbles and just be together in a place. Yeah, I think, you know, Haynes, we, we have a reputation for being kind of divisive <laughs> and sometimes mean to each other. And, um, and, and that's certainly there, you know, but there's so much more. Um, and I think, um, uh, in that, this is what maybe small towns can teach the rest of the world right now, because, you know, 
even when you look at the map of the U.S., you know, they're acting as if everything is either all red or all blue. <laughs> and if you live in a place that's pretty much deep purple, um, you, you, you know that that's not true. And you know that each, each side isn't a demon. I mean, they're your friends and neighbors. It, you know, it's the guy that plows your driveway. It's the person that teaches school. You know, it's the librarian or the cop or whatever, a fisherman or a, a you know, Boy Scout leader and pastor. I, you know, they're, they're all, we're all in it kind of together. And like you say, um, the politics don't really necessarily have anything to do with our day-to-day, you know, how we get along. And I'm, I'm not I'm not saying by any stretch not to be active. And I think it's wonderful that both Nell and Barbara, you know, you know, have the bumper stickers on their car for different causes or whatever. I mean, that's part of small town too, knowing, you know, oh, here she comes, you know, the old lefty's in the room again, but oh boy, I hope she brought her carrot cake for the fundraiser, you know, and or vice versa. Oh yeah, they've got that stuff on there, but you know, She's the one who's organizing all the books for the hospice rummage sale. And it's just how it is. Yeah, th- that, that kind of disagreement, that tension, is sort of how you know you're alive. <laughs> how, <laughs> you know, there's, no, there's no story without some form of conflict, you know? Yes. We're, we're all... and, and would we really all want to just live in a town where everybody was exactly like us? I mean, if I did, I wouldn't really have any stories to write because not that interesting without bumping up against, you know, issues. Um, So I think the the world is a more interesting place. Although, you know, I think a lot of us to get weary of living in spiritual boot camp all the time. I know this year has certainly been a challenge on so many levels. And I'll, I'll say to myself, like, ah, you know, how much character do I need? Okay. Enough humility or whatever. (laughs) I'm like, enough, like, having to adjust and adapt and not be judgy and to be real nice and not just snap at somebody. Um, that that's been really, um, it's, it's been challenging for, for everybody. I'm, I'm lucky that I can kind of, you know, write my way out of some of these things and that helps me. And I know, um, for my own instincts, which I think is different maybe than some that, you know, when I do put something out there, when I, when I do write something, I, I make it positive. I mean, I'm not, I'm just not in, I don't, I guess there was, I think it's a poet, I think her birthday's today, Edna, Edna Wheeler Wilcox, who wrote that there was enough woe in the world without adding hers <laughs> to it. And, and I, I sometimes feel like that. There's so, it's so easy to point out everything that's wrong. I mean, there's lots, and I don't mean, I don't mean to dismiss that in any way, but sometimes there's, place for voices that point out the things that are good which doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of bad things but uh, right no I, I just don't go there because i mean I, I i won't say i don't go there but it's just not my public voice it isn't there um, well, it, it makes sense to me two two points that you raised there stand out to me like uh one is that certainly it does take work to push past uh something I kind of like to think of as like the negativity. Ancient ancestors or whatever, you know? And so like our maybe 
adapted nature to constantly see terrible dangers and threat and urgently tell everyone about everything bad we've ever seen, <laughs> you know, that is not serving us that well anymore necessarily, but it is the first thought that comes to mind when we survey the, the landscape, I think. And so pushing just past that negativity into something better takes a little bit more work, but yields a, you know, a healthier heart, I think. Um, but along those same lines, like I, I think perhaps because you're writing in a landscape of obituaries substantially, you're, you're able to kind of have it all, you know, the undeniable melancholy of every suffering life, which therefore you don't need to focus on the melancholy of it. That's the context of the experience is super melancholy. So from there, by finding the good, you're able to create a, a rich balance in the moment's story, you know? And I think that's, that helps, that helps, I think, the reader, well, I guess I'm, I'm kind of trying to connect my experience as a, a person who likes mostly sad stories and writes things that are kind of painful and sad and listens to gloomy music when I'm not having to be cheerful on the radio. And I don't think I would be able to make mostly cheerful stories unless they were in spite of tragedy or something like that. You know, it's like if something... If I'm, does that make sense? Like the, the finding the good is a medicine to pain, it seems like. I guess, but you know, some of it too is, I mean, I think you can practice it. That's what I, I wanted to say in the book that you can, you can, you can kind of choose, you know, when you get up in the morning, how you want to be. I know I've been working on that now. I mean, you know, I've, it doesn't work a lot of the time, but like, at least if I sort of think about it and I, and I'm like, you know, like get up first thing this morning and like the house is cold and my husband's doing his sit-ups on the living room floor. And I'm like, ah, oh, the fire's out. And if I come right downstairs and I go, what, you have time for sit-ups and you didn't light the fire? You know, that's going to start the whole day grumpy. So it's like, I have to just like, wait, don't say that. Just go light a fire, Heather. There's nothing wrong with you crumpling up some paper and lighting it for him. Like, you know, you could do that. <laughs> so I, I uh, you know, that's just one sort of way. The other thing I think that happened um, to me, and, and you, you know, talked about it in the, you know, in the introduction where I said, you know, bad doings bring out the best in people. I think my um, heart sort of permanently tipped toward gratitude um, when I got run over by a truck riding my bicycle. And, um, you know, just all the people that took care of me from, from the local EMTs to you know, the people at Harborview and, um, you know, complete strangers, you know, this big, huge guy with dreadlocks that would like have to like carry me, you know, uh, I, I didn't even know who he was and he was in one of the nurses and was so kind to me. Um, and, um, you know, I don't even know his name. I mean, he's, uh, and during that time I, I, he, I depended on him completely for things. And so, um, you know, that, that changed me. Um, I think before that, I, I probably thought I was sort of invincible and that somehow I had earned my good fortune by just being good or something. And then, bam, you get hit by a car and you realize that, you know, there but for the grace of God go all of us. And then that changed me profoundly in, in how I saw the world and people who 
were you know suffering whether it was emotional or physical or social i mean it's like uh that could be any of us there's that but there's a song now that um i play on the country show um uh that my granddaughter had me um play i, I hadn't heard it before and i found an acoustic version because my show's sort of acoustic more than uh, you know a pop country but it's the one about um somebody's daughter i don't know if you heard that song uh I think the woman who sings its last name is Town something, but it's about, you know, she could be Sarah, she could be Emily, she's on the street corner. Who's that girl that I'm driving by? You know, she, who, who'd she go to the prom with? Who's, you know, it's somebody's daughter and she's this homeless kid on the corner. And, you know, it, I, that just speaks to me. And so it, it, it doesn't mean that there's not homeless kids on the corner and it doesn't mean that bad things aren't happening, but we can be kind to them then. Um, and, and not judgy um, about people in different situations. And I think especially this last year is, you know, over and over again, we're just, you know, the Black Lives Matter, the institutional racism in Alaska that, you know, that maybe some people like me who are white and privileged thought, oh, is it really? No, I mean, my friends, it's okay. And then you start realizing like, wait a minute, I, I've been complicit in this stuff too. I just never saw it that way. And so there's, there's a lot of change and a lot of humility and a lot of stuff that's all swirling around right now. And, um, uh, and it's not all good, but, but finding some, you know, the good is in that is in, 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 um, not to be too preachy, but, you know, working on the solution then like seeing that something isn't right and trying to fix it a little bit or speaking up instead of just being quiet when something when you hear something that is not so great that someone shouldn't be saying or doing mm, that's a powerful point and i, I like I, I like a takeaway i'm getting from that too about um how one's own suffering kind of improves us in a way that we can then better empathize with the suffering of others that we may have until that moment been blind somehow to the suffering of people around us or people far away from us but whose suffering is touching our lives through either stories or relationships and so that's an that's a powerful point that your gratitude grew in your life following the substantial suffering of a terrible accident Mm -hmm you were able to have a transformed perspective on gratitude itself and adopt it as a worldview. And then through, through that suffering, be able to have a stronger feeling of empathy for the lives of others who, you know, it's, it's so out of control how lives go, you know, mm-hmm. there's, I like the way you put it there um, in the book. I'm, I'm going to quote you here from, from that, Uh, that essay about the bike accident really stuck in my head too. He said, I believe gratitude comes from a place in your soul that knows the story could have ended differently and often does. You know, once, once you're hit by something, how close a call everything is and that we're so fortunate for everything good we have. And there's so much to be grateful for even suffering. Yeah, yes. I mean, you, you, you say it much more articulately than I do. I tend to, you know, I just, I, 
I, I'm not good at necessarily art, articulate. I write, I just write through stories, you know, and stories of people and my own way of seeing things. It isn't, it's not everybody's, but I have found in my writing that the more, um, the more personal I am, then the more, and it's weird, but then the more universal it is. Um, and um, so I, I am pretty specific. I, I, I can't really talk to so, always sort of the big pictures, but when this happens and I can say, this is how I felt and this is what it looked like to me was going on at that time. And this is what I really want to tell you because this is pretty interesting or uh, enlightening or inspiring. You know, my, my stories really come from that kind of, you know, family around the dinner table. What happened to you today? Well, you wouldn't believe it. I was writing this obituary and this happened and that happened. And, I want to tell you all about it because it matters. And that's the impetus for me, not sort of, uh, you know, a, a self-help or whatever. But I think sometimes just reading the story, then people will, will feel maybe what I felt or feel something that they need to feel that they haven't felt for a while or wanted to and didn't it brings them to that place of maybe some sort of understanding or uh, peace or, you know, forgiveness or reconciliation or whatever it might be. Yeah. Just through stories themselves. It's not, it's not that stories are self-help, but I do think stories help. Oh, I think they do tremendously. I have a little on my computer, if you can see my desk, I have all these things, little things that are taped up, you know, to give me my little pep talks every day. And one of them is from um, the writer, Brian Doyle. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was, uh, um, uh, he edited Portland Magazine. It's a Catholic magazine. I think he was a Jesuit, a good Catholic in in, um, Portland. He died of a, a brain tumor at 60. But he, um, I love his writing. And he wrote that, um, he said, this is at my desk. I have this here that, uh, that um, without stories, there is no nation and no religion and no culture. Without stories of bone and substance and comedy, there is only a river of lies and sweet and delicious ones they are too. We are the gatherers, the shepherds, the farmers of stories. We wander widely and look for them and gather them and harvest them and share them as food. It's a craft as necessary and nutritious as any other. And if you're going to be good at it, you must double your humility and triple your curiosity and quadruple your ability to listen. And that's from um, Brian Doyle. And I like that one, you know, and I think the other one that totally inspires me is I have Mary Oliver is a poet that I like if you haven't read her. She's in New England and she died of very old age, not too long ago in her nineties, I think, but her, she has a poem called Praying, and she says, um, it doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones. Just pay attention, then patch a few words together, and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but the doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. And so that one, you know, I'm always like, oh, it's not a contest. Just patch a few words together and go from there. And hand them to somebody and maybe that will be important. Mm. Ah, those are great quotes to think about both such sublime role models of, of storytellers. 
Uh, Mary Oliver and Brian Doyle. Well, I think you have to be brave. You know, I think so many people are afraid that it's not good enough or people, someone's going to make fun of you or, oh, geez, they're going to think, I can't believe she said find the good or whatever. I mean, you have to you have to kind of have courage and a little faith and maybe a, a good friend that tells you, you know, that that's pretty good. Why don't you write that down or why don't you share that with somebody because it might make a difference. And you have to listen to the the voices of encouragement. And, and like you were talking about negativity bias. Well, the same is true of all of us, like not to, in, in what we do, not to be squished by, by the, you know, the, the, the negativity hammer, but, but to, to kind of climb up and say, no, no, it's okay. I'm here. And just sort of poo poo and do, go use that hammer to build a boat or something. And I'm just going to go this way. I, I think that's important. Yeah, it's hard. It's one of the hardest things you do. You know, I think every time I write anything or send something out, I think, oh, I can't believe I just did that. Or even when I'm reading something like now, I think, oh, I, did I repeat there? Maybe I could have used a different word or the rhythm in that sentence was a little funny. I mean, you can always, there's always a reason not to let something out into the world. And there's more of them than there are to do it. But at the same time, I know that, um, you know, I know I like to, to read things. And so, and I like it when someone like Brian Doyle says that, or Mary Oliver says that I keep it. And so sometimes if, if my words help even one person or connect somehow, that's good enough. You know, that's plenty. That's, that's like everything really, you know, we just um, lost the elder uh, David Katzik um, uh, was a, a, a Clinket leader um, who was born in Klepwan, but lived in Juneau. And he, I, w- I got to hear him at a, a big Kuiks, you know, the gatherings of the, they used to call potlatches here. And um, he talked about um, giving speeches. He was a great orator, you know, spoke very, uh, he was just really someone that everybody always listened to. And he said, um, he said, you know, sometimes um, the greatest speech that you can give is thank you. Mm. all you have to say he said because someone asked him well how how can I give a talk like you he said so you know sometimes the greatest speech is thank you and of course he said it you know and he just repeated it you know but he said that that can be the greatest speech you can give and I think that's something that we sometimes forget there's a lot to be thankful for yeah a thought that arises from that is that one of the one of the great gifts we can give each other is truly listening you know, it's, it's, um, it, it touches on, you were talking about how stories can, um, even if just one person is affected by it, that, that reminded me of the essay in your book where uh, your friend Renee <laughs> asks you write her obituary. And it, it sounded like it had been maybe the first time where a living person had asked you to work with them to sort of listen to their story, write it with them, and then share it as an obituary before the moment had already passed. And I, I could really feel as I was reading that, that essay the, how to be listened to by you was such a, uh, a gift for her. And uh, there was a line in there where, um, I'll try to quote you here, she was telling me her story for a reason she knew then the way I do now that it is important to share, you know, 
the, the feeling of sharing one's story. Yeah, it's a brave act, as, as you're saying about sending writing out into the world for, for Renee to share her, her shared experience with you. Mm-hmm. She knows it's important. She feels important to be listened to by you. That, that was just a very powerful uh, essay for me as I was reading it. I, I was really struck by that and how different it is from the normal process that it sounds like writing an obituary would have to be where you have to kind of unearth little gems of personality and truth, whereas hers was there. Yeah, and I think, you know, that, that story is, um, you know, she, she, I knew her, she lived in Haines, she moved to Juneau, was teaching, I knew her family. Our, our oldest daughters actually have the same name. Um, Eliza was my oldest, and then her daughter's named Eliza. So we had these, you know, we, we knew each other through same channels. One of my daughters taught at the same school she taught at in Juneau, too. So there was that, and they came here, she and her husband had a cabin in Haines that they kept and came in the summers and stuff. But I wasn't in her inner loop. Like right now, I wouldn't be in her bubble, uh, you know, or on her text messages and things. And so, um, and I think because she lived with cancer so long, this is about, for those of you that haven't read it, a, a woman that had um, breast cancer for a lot, a lot of years. I mean, you know, it had raised children and a family and everything. And it's just, it had just been coming and going for many years and all different kinds of treatments. And um, um when she asked me to write her obituary, I was kind of shocked because I thought, you know, she looked good. I hadn't heard. I knew she'd had cancer a while ago, but I just thought it was all gone. It's one of those things that you don't know about people until they tell you, you know? And, um, and then I said, yes. And it, and it turned out that she really needed uh, a sounding board outside of all the people that were intimately involved in her. And, and it was the weirdest thing because we became friends through it was a longer process than she thought she lived longer than she had expected. So it was about a year that we were corresponding with her obituary and we were really corresponding about all kinds of things. And, um, I even got to see her, you know, pretty much the day before she died, Juno. Um, uh, and, and we became friends that way. And then in the end with her obituary, all I did really, they asked me to the family then cause she had done it, you know, to, to put it in the Juno empire. And, um, I just wrote it in her words. Basically, I just used everything that she said that she wanted to have said. And, and most of the obituary was her own words and quotes. Um, and, and that's like you said, because I think that's what she wanted was to share that story and to speak frankly about the way she lived and the way she died and what she thought was important. And it was hard to do among the people that were most close to her only because it made them so sad and it made her sad. And somehow I was just one, you know, I was just separated enough. So that's why you never even know how much you mean to people because it might not be someone in your inner circle. It might be somebody else that stops you and wants to talk for a minute and you may change their life. You know, I got a a letter the other day that, um, was from one of the kids that I coached. I used to coach the cross country running team in hands for like 17 years. And um, I got a note from one of the runners who um, uh, has since um, uh, come out as gay that, you know, wasn't in high school and is long gone and just thanked me 
for being one of the people that he said he knew he would have been able to say something and I would have accepted that. I had no idea that he was going through those kind of identity issues as a high schooler. And I was just so grateful that I, whatever vibe I gave him was a good one, you know, and, and that the things that I said and did made him feel safe and, and loved around me when I had no idea what was going on in his own, uh, you know, heart and mind. And I think that's, that was just another reminder of like, wow, you know, be careful what you say and what you do and the actions all the time. It's like um, when Anne, Anne Lamott writes that we're all in an emergency room, you know, <laughs> if we treated each other like we were all sitting in the waiting room of an emergency room, we might be a lot nicer because you just wouldn't know why they were there. <laughs> and, and they won't know why you're there, but you know that it must be something bad. Right. Like if you treat everybody in a trustworthy and caring way, then when their moment arrives where they truly need to be near someone who is trustworthy and caring, they need to look no further than whoever is near nearby. If in this, if we could live in a world where we acted that way, but each person can strive for that, I suppose. Yeah. I had a friend who was, um, for many years was the high school uh, secretary. And I remember one time she said to me, well, you get to do all this stuff. You write the obituaries and you write these books and you know, you change people's lives. And I'm just sitting here. I'm like just the high school secretary. I don't really, I'm like, are you kidding me? Every single day you are changing somebody's world by just the way you take the attendance sheet from them or answer the phone or let them sit in your office when they're not feeling good or whatever it is. You know, it's, you don't have to, it's all those interactions and, and it could be something that you don't even think about. Like with, with the, the runner, you know, I, I, whatever I did, obviously I'm so grateful that it was the right thing, but I, I, if I'd known, I, you know, would I've been worse because I've been over, you know, whatever it was, but it's, it's, it's nice to know that whatever you're doing, you're, your heart's in it and you're doing the right thing. You know, when I write an obituary, I didn't put this in the book and I, I wish I had now because, you know, it's, I think a lot of it is sort of obvious and that sometimes is what, with my editor, I'll say, well, Amy, I don't need to say this because everybody knows that. And she'll be like, no, no. And I'm like, no, really, this isn't, I, what, what I'm saying can't be a big surprise to people, but, you know, she'll say yes, yes. And so the one thing is that when I get done, you know, when I'm working with a family and we're going over everything and we have the you know, the bio stuff and we're I'm kind of getting ready and everybody's a lot more relaxed and, and feeling better about the whole situation. Um, I always say, well, you know, what is it um, that you loved about the person and, and what is it that they loved? And that usually gets me like most of the stuff I need for the obituary when they start talking like that. I don't ask it right in the beginning because there's just too much emotion, but when we've gotten the biography and they've told me about this and their friends and the, where they went to college or what military service they were in or all the survived buys and preceded and death buys. And I said, so what is it that they loved? And what, what did you love about them? And then everybody just starts talking. And maybe that's kind of the question we should ask when we, every time we see somebody, so what is it that we love about this person? <laughs> and, and what is it that they love that we can be interested in, you know? Uh, I, I really appreciate that as a little cognitive device. Like when you see a person, a first question to ask yourself, what, what does that person love? <laughs> you know, I think part of these divisive times, people assume so much about what the other person hates because there's this right. 
brainwashing out there about so-and-so hates this and this person's your enemy because they hate you mm-hmm. and this like indoctrination of exaggerated hatred but probably most of that is you know exaggerated but what is not exaggerated is that each and every person loves stuff <laughs> people and things or uh, pursuits and if we asked ourselves that about each person who we have a run-in with my God, we'd probably relate to them so much more and care about each and every person we cross paths with. We might. We just might. I mean, I know like when I go to Petersburg, I just love the, I just love walking the docks, you know, and the, the so many well-loved boats, you know. I mean, you know, just that, just the act of, you know, painting and polishing and keeping everything, you know, ship shape. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's something, you know, um, the, I love the um, the designs in the sidewalks. <laughs> there, you know, it's like wow, in Ames we just have crummy old sidewalks, and in Petersburg they put these pretty designs, and so that you're actually like, wow, oh, that's a nice sidewalk. Whoever heard of such a thing? So I, I don't know. There's there's so, somebody made those decisions, and somebody said, let's make this. You know, those are things that people have loved and just maintaining and there's right away, that's a good window into to, to something. Mm, that's true. Well, I want to remind folks out there, they've probably been enthralled here and there and all these little pearls of wisdom, you know, but um, folks can call in if they have a question that they want to um, put to Heather Lindy here about the book or uh, really, uh, I suppose if they've got any, any big question that's come up as they've listened to us, they're invited to 772-3808. We've got a phone line open for you and we can, we can talk to people if they want to. Um, you know, I really did enjoy this book. <laughs> I, it's a, it's one worth revisiting to that essay structure. It's got a lot of what people can go back to when they need to reconsider stuff. I, do you have a favorite essay in there? I think for me, I, I like the, the beginning and the ending, the first, first one and the last one. And I actually wrote them as one and then cut it in half and made one the beginning and one the ending. Um, and so that kind of, I thought, well, if I just did that, then that's the whole book. But then the other stories filled it up, you know. But what I really had to say was in that first and the last one. Um, but, um, you know, the other thing that happens too is that I, every time I, I read them, I think, I could have done better, or I'm not sure, you know, there's other, now, of course, I mean, the book was published in 2015, so basically I finished writing it in around 2013 or so, it takes, it's about a two-year of all the publication stuff, um, so, you know, there'd be different things in it now, different stories, I'm older, um, you know, life has changed, there may be some things that I would have said differently or not. I mean, everything is a, in, in my writing world is sort of a continuum. And then the, and then the books themselves or even each little story, or like in this case, each little essay, or they become like a little piece of their own and it sort of stops time. But since it's all real life, you know, if I was reading it, I could have all kinds of amendments. <laughs> so I'm going, well, actually this is different now and that's different, you know, but I can't do that when I'm writing. I just stop it where it is and then finish it, and then go to the next and the next. And the thing that saves me is like, well, there's always something else to write. It's not like the last thing or the only thing. And I think that comes even from um, 
you know, like running when I was running all the time, it's like, well, you know, there's always another race. If, if you have a bad day today or whatever you, you do better tomorrow. And now I, you know, I ride my bike or I swim, I do those things. And I think, well, today it was kind of didn't, didn't do so well. I'm exhausted and I didn't go as far as I wanted to, but maybe next week I'll have a great ride. And then I do. And that that's kind of with writing is the same thing, whether it's an essay or a book or, um, you know, just a, a blog. It's like, you just, you put it out there and you know that there's going to be another chance to, to put something else out there because nothing is really over right. until it's over, I guess. But even then it isn't. I mean, I mean, that's the other thing, you know, we all know there's something eternal about, um, you know, human beings and, um, and stories and they last and they take on a life of their own that might go in a very different direction than, than whoever was writing it had planned for different readers and different times and places. So just like, yeah, the story keeps living and zigging and zagging just like the life had, you know, and our lives do, you know, the things that we leave behind that people remember. I mean, I just, I think there's some, energy there that, you know, regardless of what your, your faith tradition is, there's, you know, there's, there's an impact there. We're just, when we're thinking about somebody that's gone, that, that change might change my day or my response to something. Um, and I, I like to think that there's a whole kind of, you know, we just went through all saints and all souls and all that, but you know, you think that there's this whole army of saints behind us somewhere. that are kind of gone pushing you towards doing a little better each time. Totally. Right, remembering the stories of, you know, our loved ones, our the saints, our ancestors, you know, people who worked real hard to get us into this moment now, pushing us forward, and we're like, you know, we're these... Right, I'm, I'm looking for, I have a poem, I, I have become very fond of poems during all this COVID time, and I, I've been listening to the uh, poetry uh, foundations podcast and reading different poems and they're so good and a lot of them are so accessible I mean, and i'll go back and forth listening and finding one but there was a, there's a woman named kathy song um who wrote a poem called this wonderful opportunity and it's just really nice it's like a prayer and sort of a blessing all in one and i won't read the whole thing but this sort of speaks to what um um she has this line in it about um, may those who have gone before us rest in peace, rest in comfort, rest in joy, and may we remember to remember them. Mm. And I, I really like that, you know, because you hear that first part all the time, but may we remember to remember them is a, is a nice thought. But that's a nice poem that I, I printed out the whole thing on my, keep it on my desk for when I'm feeling a little grumpy. Yeah. That's, that is such a good reminder, you know, and this holiday that, that we've just passed through is, is my favorite holiday of the year for exactly that reason. There's all, all the different traditions of the world that take it seriously or whatever are doing so because it's, a, it's an urgent call to remember the lives that have come before us and our, our part in that continuum of, of effort. Well, yeah, and the traditions around us, you know, we have, I have a, there's a, a, a rabbi from uh, San Francisco that has a, a, a place in Haines now that she comes in the summer. And um, I was talking to her before she went down south, we walk and um, Rosh Hashanah, you know, the, the Jewish New Year is all about remembering as well. And then, of course, um, 
all the, the local um, native traditions uh, for um, remembering uh, and passing on the stories and, and the, all the rituals surrounding deaths from 40 day to 100 day to year parties to the foods to the names. That's all really um, uh, a good guideline, I think, for and, and probably has influenced me in, in my writing, particularly. And, and my looking at the way the world moves and the way people move through it has come a lot from my uh, neighbors in Haines who um, have a, such a, a, a much deeper tradition and a connection to that than, than I have in my life. Mm. There's so much to be gained from respecting the traditions around us outside of just our own. Like you, like you say, we, there's so many teachers in the world. Mm-hmm. Many. Mm, I love it. Well, uh, that sounded like a cuckoo clock <laughs> ringing the hour chime, which um, conceivably that kind of brings us to the close of our time. Um, I, I suppose we haven't been barraged by calls, but I'm sure folks have been out, out there enjoying listening. And uh, I, I expect many, many folks in town have read your book and are maybe continuing to read it, or if they haven't yet and they're intrigued, I certainly highly recommend it myself. And I know our public library has uh, quite a few copies, maybe dozens of copies that people... Yeah, that's neat. And they're handing it to people, I think. And then I just finished, you know, another book called uh, About My Time in the Hainsborough Assembly that might be something good to read during this uh, post-election time about how to, how to get through your own divisive and difficult times of, of bears and ballots came out um, this summer. So there's another book, Past to Find the Good Now, which gave me a chance to practice writing a little more. Oh, good. Well, uh, certainly I'm eager to read that now, having read this one. Uh, I found it to be just what I wanted to hear in a certain way, you know, kind of challenging and encouraging and acknowledging of hardship. It's not avoiding of anything. It's just full of valuable reminders um, of ways that we can endure hard times and come out kinder and wiser on the other side for simply having listened to the stories of the people who are living around us. Yeah, and I wanted to thank the library too, you know, Petersburg for doing all that and all the librarians. Um, all of my books, are, I think, are available at most libraries. And I also wanted to give a shout out to uh, Singley Alley Books. And, you know, Petersburg is really lucky to have a great bookstore. And so I, I, not just getting my book there, but anything right now, especially during these times, um, it's really important to support, you know, your independent uh, booksellers and and all the independent businesses because especially the ones that are non-essential or whatever have, have taken a hit and um, I know uh, I'm, I'm glad that in some small way maybe my books can help that but there's lots um, I'm, I'm heading to the bookstore today in Haines to get some books for a new baby that was born in Juneau that's sort of a shirt tail relative. So I want to put together a little basket and send down there. So um, anyway, please, please do that. And also if you want to get in touch with me, I'm really easy to find. Um, I've got this website that's heatherwendy.com, but it, you know, there's pictures and a little blog and you can send me an email and I'll get back to you. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's such a, such a welcome endorsement for supporting bookstores and reading in the library and, 
reading together as families, sharing stories. Because gosh, yeah, it's through, through that beautiful act of sharing a story that we all learn so much about how to handle hard times, how to, how to grow our empathy at a time in the world which could really benefit from folks putting extra effort into growing our empathy and growing our curiosity about the lives and experiences of others and, and um, keeping our eyes on the work of engaging in community. And uh, so, so great to get a chance to talk with you today, Heather, and celebrate community and people's stories. And we really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. And thank you, Petersburg Public Library, for making the connections here. And I'm sure this conversation will be up if people missed it and they want to listen to it again or revisit it or share it on the um, library's podcast. Well, so, thank you. Thanks very much. It's really, I'm only sorry I can't be in Petersburg, but it's pretty cool that I'm sitting here with my dog snoring behind me and my dad snoring on the window seat. And here I am. <laughs> well, you'll be welcome back uh, when travel is uh, more uh, readily available. But meanwhile, great to have you in the comfort of your own home and coming out of the radios in the comfort of everybody else's homes around town too. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Heather. You're welcome. Take care. <laughs>